This 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 Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. I always say this. You guys know that I always say this, but it's my pride and it's my pleasure to bring on. Um, not only is he a great scholar, not only is he an American historian, New Testament scholar, philosopher of religion, Christian apologist, blah, blah, blah. He's also a really good friend of mine. Uh, he, I've had the pleasure to work uh, with this um, professor for, I guess, since 2012 or 13 uh, in the apologetic world, he's like the great lion, is what we call him down here at Tactical Faith. He is such a great scholar. He's a great individual. Um, he's a great Christian. All those just mixed into one. His name is Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Gary, thanks for coming on. Matt, you're more than uh, welcome. I'm listening to that introduction. I reminded of what a friend said. I heard him say when he got an introduction like that, he said, you know what? He said, introductions are like perfume. You're meant to sniff them, but you're not supposed to drink it. <laughs> and so I have to be careful I don't drink that and get a big head, you know? Well, well, I think a lot of you. Uh, every time we've brought you down here, you've always been spectacular. You've always brought your A game. And uh, uh, you, whenever you leave, that's the first thing somebody says is, when is he coming back? But, oh, that is so nice. And I've always enjoyed my trips and not just... As you know, uh, it's not just coming down there and seeing your family, but man, your kids and I have something going too. So yeah, Uncle we always Gary. Uh, enjoy seeing each other. Uncle Gary. So your life and career, Uncle real Gary. Your life and career, real quick. You are you are a distinguished research professor of apologetics and philosophy. You're a chairman That's of correct. the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University, of course, in Lynchburg, correct. Virginia. You hold a Doctor of Philosophy degree from Michigan State University, I believe. You said before in history and the philosophy of religion, and That's correct. I think you master's degree in. Well, hold on, University of Detroit, right? In philosophy, University of Detroit, philosophical yeah. theology or something like that, right? That's correct, philosophical yeah. theology. See, yeah. I, man, I knew it. It's in there somewhere. You're, uh, con well, we'll get to what you're working on right now, but my interest okay. in bringing you in is to talk about a very important subject that maybe doesn't get talked about a lot these days, um, but, but it's still, in the churches that I go to, I still get a question or two about it, and that's doubt. Um, yeah. and, and doubt is an important issue to deal with both on a pastoral level and on a philosophical level, theological level. Let's just start right in. Tell me what, what the difference between, is there a difference between something like unbelief and doubt? Well, man, that's tough because the two overlap like crazy. Um, for example, you could be an unbelieving doubter. Um, I'm just doing it off the top, top of my head, but maybe a New Testament example would be Simon the Sorcerer. You know, turns out uh, Peter gets on his case and very upset with him, and the implication is he's not a believer. But he was, you know, a doubter, too, and then 
he sees Peter doing some things and, and he wants to buy it from Peter. That made Peter angry. So unbelievers can doubt, but true believers ask questions. And maybe the best example there is when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends two of his disciples and asks. I mean, if it wasn't that we just took take the Bible at face value, we'd be stunned by the question they ask. Are you the Messiah, or should we look for someone else? I mean, you know, it's like, boys, you're a little over the line. You're saying, are you the Messiah? That's rough enough, guys, but I'll answer your question. Oh, oh, you got a part B? Yeah. Well, should we follow this guy down the street? His name is Buddha. All right, guys, now you're going too far. I mean, that was a really heady question, but but uh, nobody would claim that John the Baptist was not a Christian. So it, to, to me, if you look at doubts like uncertainty or questions, if you look at them that way, then you say, who can ask them? And the answer is anybody. So it's hard to, it's hard to nail the person's heart down, too, from the questions. In fact, they probably don't know. Since, because, you know, they're caught up in these questions themselves. So most of my questions come from a great book that you wrote probably in the early 90s, um, Moody Press, called Dealing with Doubt. And yeah. in, and in yeah. that book, which is a great book, is it still in print? No, no, no. It's been out of print for a long time. But I have three books on doubt, and it is probably the headiest of the three books, the, the, the most theory in it. Yeah, it's the one that I got on my shelf. I think you gave me one one time, and I, I, I go to it a lot. In that particular book, though, you identify different types of doubt. Would you mind going right. over what those are and defining them? Sure. Sure, and I still pretty much stick with the same thing, in fact, almost identically. Um, when I first started talking to doubters, and I've had over 700 uh, discussions with doubters, and finally I gave it to one of my, I passed on these folks to my a PhD student of mine who's doing a great job with it, but for so long I handled it myself. <clears throat> and I thought at the beginning, I ended up correcting almost all my own views, and I thought, wow, a, most doubt must be intellectual, and, or fa- you know, factual, philosophical, something, and a good dose of apologetics would handle it to which the answer is eh, wrong answer um, turns out from some testing um, that I didn't do I'm not qualified to test but a good friend of mine is a clinical psychologist we kind of worked together for years and maybe 15% is that kind but most doubt is type 2 and that's emotional doubt now, and, and the third doubt, just to get the definitions out of the way, the, the third one is volitional doubt. And that's the guy, I just heard about one, just recently heard one again, kind of sad case. A person who, let's say they were the leading lay person in a church, very well known in every meeting. They could even do a little bit of substitute preaching, but they were a lay person. And Sunday school teacher, board, elder, everything. And then one day, their wife's in church, their kids are in church, and they're not in church anymore. And you find out they fish and they hunt. And, and you know the guy real well, so you say to him, dude, what's wrong with you? Uh, you and you quit believing? Oh, no, no, Christianity's true. No doubt about it. Well, why have you given up on it? Eh, not my cup of tea. doesn't meet my needs. And 
volitional doubt, the third kind, is kind of emotional doubt that's gone on for a long time and it gets hardened. This is the hardened heart, the third one. The second one, though, is the emotional one. And Matt, I can tell you, my my uh, my wife is real funny on this one. She'll, I'll say, yeah, it's emotional, and it's mostly women who have this. And my wife will say, well, yeah, I'll admit that we're more emotional than you guys, but we have an advantage over you guys. What's that? At least we know when we're emotional. And and that's a really good insight because the guys not thinking they're emotional don't look behind that door. And most of all doubt, including male doubt, is emotional. Hmm. And so here's the question for emotional doubt. How do you handle your unruly emotions? That's a big issue. So does that mean, well... In my discussions, and and when I when I go about talking with people, you, you say the second type of doubt is that somewhat connected to hurt. Like a lot of a lot of issues oh. that people have, I come to find if you start kind of you know, of course I'm not a counselor, but if you start talking to them and listening to them and develop a relationship, yep. before you know it, yep. at the core of their questioning is some sort of emotional hurt. Is that kind of what yep. emotional doubt is? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good example of a species. Of emotional doubt. Now, if you go, okay, now emotional doubt could come from a hurt. Now, then what's volitional, third category? And I would say take that emotional hurt and let it grow hard like a rock over 10 years. Mm. And what they're saying is, yeah, it used to just be an emotional problem, but God didn't listen, didn't answer my prayer. And now I just don't care anymore because he's not going to answer it. So the long-term one, the hardened heart one, could be the same thing, a hurt, but one that's gone on for a long time, and the guy would rather go fishing because he thinks God's you know, sold him out. So if tactical faith is involved in, in our state in helping to equip Christians to think about their faith, uh, to develop and help and foster the life of the mind, let me ask you this question. How do, if we're Christians, how do we identify those things and how we in ourselves and in other people and how do we go about helping people deal with this these types of doubt because i would assume that sometimes you're not just one of those one of those three you might be some sort of mix of all those too right and boy you know you'd think you'd read my mind or something yeah i tell people all the time we are not sterile individuals we're not just a blank you know you could have primarily emotional doubt. But when the guy tells you, yeah, no, I think I'm mostly a factual doubter. Well, you could have a pretty strong factual component, but here's how you know it's emotional doubt. Uh, so you got, the, you got this question about whether Jesus died on the cross, let's say, any, anything. And someone's given you, you know, 14 evidences for it, and that's not hard. Uh, in fact, Bart Ehrman, the famous atheist and Testament scholar, gives 15 independent sources for the crucifixion. So someone gives you evidence for the crucifixion, and you're still suffering doubt. And someone goes, well, I gave you plenty of evidence, but here's how you deal with it. You go, yeah, but what if we're wrong? That guy that told me that was a Christian, right? Yeah, he's a little prejudiced, right? What if he's wrong? So... What you just did was take all the facts, 
14, 15. You took all these facts for crucifixion, and you what if them into non-existence. Oh, okay. And, and nothing is immune to a what if. You know, uh, the new. I hate to say this, but the New England Patriots could be the could be the best football team in the National Football League. But but you could say, yeah, it's a new season. What if blank? is going to throw a monkey wrench in their theory. Uh-oh, now the fan's not so sure anymore. That's just what happens to our doubts. And, and one more thing, we usually doubt the thing. could be the Patriots, because we usually doubt things that are the closest to our hearts. Mm-hmm. So the reason we doubt our faith, the reason uh, a spouse might doubt their, their husband or wife's uh, love is because we think about it. We only worry about things we care about. Mm-hmm. If you say... Yeah, the Dodgers stink this year. And you go, I could care less. I hate the Dodgers. Well, that's not a challenge for me. But if you go after one of my children or my job or my home or especially my faith, yeah, I'm I'm getting a little bit upset. Now, notice upset is an emotion. So all these things come in. And you're right. To go back to your original point, we are multifaceted people. We We need to learn how to pull things out. You know, it's like taking the weed away from the flower in your garden. Um, we need to separate them and pull them out because they do get intertwined. Mm. So how does how do we as individuals deal with somebody that's in one of these three places yeah, or a mix the, of all the, of them? The example I use is if you go to your physician and you say, man, it took a lot for me to come in here, but I am really hurting and I need some help. Okay, what are your uh, symptoms? Hmm. Well, I've got a really, really sore throat and a bit of a fever. Okay, I understand. Um, you know, the flu is going around. It could be that. But but also, I've got this really, really bad stomachache. Hmm. Well, that's not a symptom of the flu. We call that, you can have a stomach virus and the flu. You have two things. Oh, and by the way, I hurt my knee yesterday, and it hurts when I go up and down the stairs. Can you give me something for my knee while I'm here? Okay, so you give multiple symptoms, and what the physician says is, like pretty much everyone knows, the physician is going to treat the symptom, which A, is most serious, and B, for which there's medicine. If you have a virus, sorry, can't give you medicine for a virus, um, but I might be to give you something for your knee while you're here. Might be give you some stomach stuff for your stomach. You gotta you gotta let the virus play out. So the physician has to make a decision about what is the most serious, and we don't take care of it. And what can I take care of? Um, same thing with doubt. You hear the person talk, and if the predominant thing is the what if, yeah, they got fifteen evidence for the crucifixion, but they're what ifing it to death. Hmm. I say to myself. You might be a factual doubter because you're asking for facts, but since you what if everything, your what if is your modus operandi. That's the real you. And yeah, you're a thinker. You're a thinker. You you got some thinking there, but but dude, we got to take care of this what if baloney that you shower over everything, like you know salt on a steak. You you just got to quit that. So those people and doubt and emotional doubt in general. This is tricky for pastors and people who haven't had this. But you have to teach them how to deal with their emotions. Mm. That's hard. Go, wait a minute. I came in here for 15 evidences for the crucifixion. Yeah, well, I already gave that to you, and obviously it didn't help. (laughs) 
So we've got to work on your what if because you can what if everything in the world. I can give you 10 more evidences for the crucifixion. You're going to walk out of here in a well-placed what if. You're going to be calling me tomorrow. So that's why we have to fix the emotions is this, most of the time. Now, it might be a little personal, but um, is this the type of kind of relationship and discussion you'd had with Dr. Flew as you walked him through from atheism to theism? Was there a lot of this going on? or You know what? I think if I tell the story now, nothing secret, but I think he had a couple things going on. Number one, he, he was a super sharp guy. Uh, you know, it's been said that he's probably written more pro-atheist literature than any atheist who ever lived. I mean, he, he's a heady guy, and he thinks well. But also, this is just a personal feeling of mine, and I hope someone doesn't call me up and say, you're so full of it, you know. But his wife, he called her a Jewess. She was Jewish, and I think she's, he said she was an atheist. And I often wonder if one of the reasons why he didn't want to come over was out of total respect and love for her. Mm. You know, not wanting to hurt her. And, and you know, you may find out in situations like that that it doesn't bother the other person at all. Now, I can't, I can't prove that. Sure. I can't prove there's anything like that. But I'm just giving an example of how two things could go on. You don't have enough evidence. Then later in his life, he was famous for saying, I had to go where the evidence went. He saw the evidence was much better. He gave three different arguments for it. For God, later in life, he became a theist. Um, you know, and I know he said deism, but he also used the word theism interchangeably. And as far as I know, even though he knew the gospel, he never became a Christian. Mm. Ooh, that's for another podcast. Maybe you'll put that in a book yeah. one day. So um, <laughs> one thing go. I do love about your work, and for those who don't know, you can actually go to www.garyhabermas.com, and his Dealing with Doubt book is up there to read, by the way. It's a, it's a great resource for pastors. It's a great place to go because he puts up a lot of resources. And Dealing with Doubt, um, I know, is a book that you have put up there for you to read. But one of the things that I've enjoyed about that particular book is your talk on uh, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, I think is one of the chapters, and how the Holy yep, Spirit is. Ha is an important part of of this issue. And you go about defining the Holy Spirit and its place in dealing with doubt. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure, sure. Uh, in what sense? What the Holy Spirit does for us, or how the Holy Spirit is there all the time, even though we're going through a bunch of garbage? Or I think, I think, in relation to what you said about the thing, we doubt things that are closest to our hearts. Because if I remember about yeah. that book, you really talked about you. You go into this idea of knowledge, but even knowledge is irreducible. I think you say to an intuitive element, and you define the Holy Spirit as. Uh, one way to define it is my mind connecting to God's mind. So there's there's this relationship that I have. It's personal. It's subjective. But e but you, what brought that to mind is when you say closest to our heart, right? That I would assume as a Christian is our number one relationship we have. And if that is our primary relationship, then it's probably health. It's probably healthy to acknowledge that doubt is just something that's going to happen. You know, er, you know, if that's the closest primary core being relationship that we're in, and maybe does the do you go? Do you? I don't remember if you go into the what the Holy Spirit's role in 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 if there's a Holy Spirit role in helping us deal with doubt. Yes, I I do. Um, here's a crazy illustration just popped into my mind. I haven't used this before, but sometimes 
if a husband or wife is real close to their spouse, they've got a really good marriage going, and they really read each other, and sometimes one or the other can kind of go off on something and say, I think Bob was trying to hurt me in church yesterday, or I don't like what happened. Uh, so-and-so's blah, blah, blah. And they have this interpretation. And their spouse says, now look, you've known Bob for a long time, and, and Bob would would never do that. And, and oh, and I didn't even tell you, I heard him say something uh, after you walked away that totally disproves what you're saying. Now I don't say to I don't say to my spouse, I need four evidences before I'm going to believe that, and you know be cured of worry, being worried about Bob. No, I trust my wife intuitively. If we're real close, I'm going to trust what she says. Or sometimes here's another example: my mother used to say things to us that we were all churned up about something. A grade could be a friend turned it back on us. And my mom would say, hey, I've only said this a few times to you, and it's always been true. Can you trust me that this is going to work out? Can you trust me? You don't say, mom, give me 14 evidences. No, mom's always been faithful in the past. Yeah, mom, I can trust you. You say the same thing to your spouse. I think the Holy Spirit has a role, something like those two roles of mom and your spouse, where the Holy Spirit comes alongside you. And... When the Holy Spirit over and over again in Scripture, and I have it in that chapter, and I have it in a couple other journal articles, when the Holy Spirit comes alongside you, it says that the Holy Spirit gives us knowledge. Now, some people go do an end run with that, and they think that means he teaches systematic theology or something. I just I don't see that in Scripture at all. But what Scripture's uh, unanimous about is that the Holy Spirit bears witness with us about our salvation. And it's like Mom or your spouse saying, hey, listen, I I got you covered on this one. Just trust me. And if you trust the Holy Spirit, here's the key. If the Holy Spirit is right, that you're a child of God, then this is the way you go after apologetics. Is one of the key ways I go after apologetics. If I know that my family and I are safe with the Lord, I can take anything. Mm. I can take anything. If you say to me, well, your God is... is, uh, a commander of genocide in the Old Testament. He told told them to kill people. And I could say, look, even if I don't know how to answer your question, I know enough about the gospel to know it's true. The Holy Spirit, I'm convinced, has told me that. I, here's the way to look at it. The, the evidences say it's true. The Holy Spirit tells me I'm a member of the group that is invested in that truth. Mm. So I have two things. Facts say it's true. Holy Spirit says that's you too, and so you know what, Bob? I, I I can't I can't answer your question right now. That's a tough question, but I know Christianity is true. And I know a member of the group. I don't care if it takes me ten years; I'll get back to you. But I don't doubt my my faith. Uh, I think those good. are the sorts of things the Holy Spirit does, kind of what a spouse or a, a mother would do. Yeah. So that I, I'm assuming that's one of the reasons why one of your chapters is is on heaven. Um, the, in the apologetic world, you know, there's that that key verse of uh, be ready to give uh, a defense for the hope that's in you. Uh, right. The you're you're telling me that that's that's the hope, uh, the hope that you're in the group and that the evidence is true and that can pretty much get you through anything. That's right. That, that, and by the way, hope as it's used in the New Testament, is not the way we use the English word. Hope doesn't mean, 
oh, man, I'm crossing my fingers, dotting my I's and crossing my T's. I, I really hope I'm right in this one. Hope in the New Testament means grounded, a ground of faith. In fact, a great example is Peter, First Peter. The first chapter says um, you're going through persecution right now. Persecution's tough, but we have a hope for the future because we have heaven. And you can go right, 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 pie in the sky, and Peter, keep, and Peter goes right on because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And your heavenly account has been locked up in heaven, and nobody can take it from you, all because of his resurrection. Mm. Ah! Hmm. So the resurrection ensures my hope. Ah, now I know what you mean. So that's a biblical notion of hope. It's grounded. Yeah, you have a great talk called Joy of the Resurrection. And I remember in that talk where you you have this like almost like coach speak moment where your fist is in the air you're ta- you're 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 getting your information from Paul and you're you're almost taunting death you are taunting oh, death yeah 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 it's that's the kind of i guess cuz i'm a kind of a guy but in uh, the man in me is like that moment when you say stuff like that that's the moment i want to live in that's my hope my hope is to almost yeah, like charge yeah, forward false is, false is death where's your sting grave where's your victory at the end of first Corinthians 15 and, and what's so cool about that, you said fist pumping in the air and everything. Uh, when you read the commentaries, the reason I do that little skit-type thing there on the end of that lecture is because you can read the commentaries. Paul's not doing poetry there. Paul is getting in death's face. Paul is getting in Satan's face. It's what we today would call trash-talking. Mm-hmm. Only today, Mom tells you not to do it because trash-talking is about, is about you— Paul wasn't talking about himself. Paul was bragging about his Lord. That's awesome. And he's saying, yeah, you you guys can still hurt me, death and Satan. You could still hurt me. But Jesus has done it. He's in heaven. I'm home free. I may hurt, but I got it. Yeah, that's good. And that, that, that's another look. at That's the kind of word that hope is in the New Testament. That's fantastic. So quickly, one more thing, and that is on the question of when God does not answer, or even the hiddenness of God. There's a a lot of people that I've run into over the years, too, that have, they're probably in the volitional portion of the doubt. Uh, God Mm -hmm. did not answer a question, or over time they They've been hurt by church, and they they want to get back in, but they just say God is silent. He's not there. I'm doubting he exists because he's not showing his presence to me. How do you deal with that? Well, okay, there's a couple—I I would ask them a couple questions to see which way they're coming at it. Are they saying, um, obviously, I prayed and God didn't answer, but are they saying— in John 14 to 16, he promises three times that if we pray in his name, he's going to come to us and he's going to answer our prayer. And I've done it exactly all three ways, and I haven't gotten an answer. What I mean is I've turned the nail down with some super text. Sure. I mean, I mean, if that's what they're doing, what I'd like to point out to people, I'll point out two things. One is that, yeah, three times in John 14 to 16, Jesus says, do this and do that. One of them is pray in my name. Do this and that, and you'll have whatever you ask for. Oh, what's well, a great promise. I think I'll memorize those three verses. Uh, before you memorize those three verses, do you also want to memorize three verses in the same context, John 14 and 16, where Jesus says we're going to have trouble, and in one of the three, he says they're going to kill you. Do you want that too? <laughs> Wait a minute. How can they kill us if I can have whatever I ask for? 
Well, I might not be able to answer that question for you directly, but I will tell you something. Having the answer because you prayed the way he wanted you to is not all there is to it. Mm. Because three times he says, do this and you'll get it. And in the very same context, he says, you're going to be hurting. And they're even going to kill you. So somehow we have to learn to take the whole counsel of Scripture, not take out the, the verses that are great and ignore the other ones. The other thing that I think is way more powerful is this. I'll hear people say this one to me. Same problem, a little different slant. They'll say, you know what? When I read the New Testament, I see God always coming to the aid of believers. He's always there for them. And I don't see that in my life at all. He's almost always there in the New Testament, almost never there for me. What's wrong with this picture? And I'll start different ways. Sometimes you kind of give a mild taunt to somebody, especially when you know the person. And I'll go, uh, always there for them. Was that the case when Peter was crucified upside down? Mm. What do you think Paul thought before he was beheaded, moment before he was beheaded? What do you think when that first stone hit James? a very righteous man, according to Josephus and our early sources. What do you think he thought when the first stone hit him? And it really, really hurt. In fact, I'll tell you something a little bit more bombastic. If you go through the New Testament and count every time, it would be humanly convenient for God to show up. In the New Testament, he almost never does. Mm. Oh, man. And you go, whoa. That's sort of like today. I go, you got it. Now, I'm not saying that's, the, that's just an easy answer. All right, so God dogs us no matter what. No, I didn't say that. He could have a hundred reasons. He could. James says he he uh, delays things because he wants to teach you uh, patience. So there's all all our parents do that. Now I want you to learn this lesson. You know, and God could do that. But I'm just saying this idea that God is always there in the New Testament, never there today, is a total myth. There are almost there are very, very few times. I had I said this in a lecture one time, and I had a lady raise her hand. I said, yes. And she said, what about Acts where Paul and Silas are in prison, and all of a sudden there's an earthquake, and the jail cell opens up, and they not only get out scot-free, they get to lead the jailer and his family to the Lord. And I said, okay, okay, first of all, before I say a word, there are a few times when God takes people from from things. But here's my second point. That's not one of them. I said, that case you're talking about, Paul and Silas are in the prison cell and that just opens up. I said, was that before or after they were whipped? And Mm. she said, she goes, whoops. Uh, Yeah, I withdraw my question. So yeah, they got out, quote unquote, scot-free after a whipping and after being put in the stocks for a while. They weren't treated very well. So, yeah, there are, I mean, Acts 13 is a better example, because Peter gets out of jail when an angel comes in and takes him. But those cases are rare. Of the half dozen cases or so in Jesus' life, Jesus arguably never gets out without any problems whatsoever. Twenty half gets out a couple times. Mm. That's good. I mean, Matt, what happens when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my, my God, God, why have you, you That's so funny. I was, ex- I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, if Jesus, sure. if Jesus is asking, why are you ignoring me? 
are you surprised that you're asking that question? <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's awesome. I was thinking the exact same thing. And, and by the way, that's just the cross. Yeah. What happened? Could he have asked the same question in the garden? Sure. Could he have asked the same question when the priests were slapping him for not answering the high priest questions the right way? Could he have said the same thing when Herod's soldiers beat him up? Could he have said the same thing when Pilate's soldiers beat him up? I mean, this looks like a habit here. Mm, that's so good. Now, In fact, it, Jesus got, wor Jesus got worse pro uh, treatment physically than we ever get. Yeah, and he did it for us. So, that's what makes the gospel yeah. so great. Now everybody yeah. understands why I like Dr. Gary Habermas so much. So, um, I mean, I know I could spend you know, probably another hour and a half talking to you before we let you go. What are you working on now? Is there something you can tell us you're working on? I mean, what are you, what are you doing? You well, talk people, people keep uh, giving me little articles and journals and things I can't say no to, because I really wanted to publish this or that. So I stopped. It just happened recently for two more articles, but, the, but the main thing I'm working on is Michael Cohen and others, probably you, Matt, uh, a long time ago, uh, started pushing me to write a magnum opus on the resurrection. And to make a long story short, I kicked and screamed for about three years, and I said, no way, I've got, well, now 15, but maybe I had eight or nine grandkids at that time, and I said, i got games to go to, and I don't want to hawk my life. Well, I passed the halfway point two months ago, uh, I'm not halfway point. I passed the five year mark two years ago. So what got me was when Mike Lacona said to me, um, <laughs> he said, you don't want to die and leave all this stuff on the resurrection in your mind. I thought to myself, golly, I'm not close to dying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's been sure. like eight years since then. So, uh, no, I'm not dying. I'm closer than I was in, but you know, I'm not dying, but he really, got me when he said, are you going to leave this to the church or not going to leave it to the church? So I took him up on it. I started reading and I am right now getting close to the 4,500 oh page goodness. mark on the resurrection. Oh. I've got 20 something books in the resurrection, but I can say this, almost none of that material is in these 4,500 pages. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait till it's done. I bet you can't. <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm going to get the first one off the press and have you sign it for me. Hey, the, the things guys tell me are really cool. I had a guy I don't even know him. He emailed me, and he said, "Can you warn me when the first volume's coming out? Because I got to get a second mortgage on my house." Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I could believe it. Well, thank you so uh, much for coming on. Hey, uh, I had, had a great time with you, Matt. Yes, great question. You got great insights. You've had a lot of great ministry experience and. And, and and folks, I mean, we didn't practice this. What he was asking just dovetailed with with uh, what I would say. So I really appreciate your insights, Matt. It's been a good interview. Sure. And if people want to check his stuff out, it's at GaryHabermas.com. Go on YouTube, look up Gary Habermas. Again, if you want something on the historical Jesus, ancient emphasis of the life of Christ, uh, the Shroud of Turin is something we've done before. He's really good at um, even, I mean, this guy does the things he does, he does well. Uh, minimal facts is one and also near-death experiences i mean there's so much that people could could glean from your god has honored your work we have been honored from your work and we just thank, thank you for coming you. on 
Thank you. Man, I could, I could say real quickly, there's a second book called The Thomas Factor. Someone might think okay. it's on the resurrection of Passover. But that's on emotional doubt, which and that's also free. Nothing's for sale on my website. For those two doubt books, the one you mentioned, Dealing with Doubt, and the one, The Thomas Factor, two free doubt books that people can take them and help help people who are going through doubts. I would be really pleased to find out that it, it was a... Um, you know, lift up to, to somebody. Well, this has been fun for me digging back into this book, and I'm I'm thinking about offering this as a maybe a, a teaching lecture that I might do for, for the state of Alabama. It was just good. I, going through all oh, this stuff you. over the last week has just been really fun for me. All right. Well, thank you so much, and we will see okay, you soon. Okay, man. Have a good night. Say say hi to everybody for me. Oh, we'll do it. All right. Bye bye. All right, man. Have a good night. Bye bye.